I'll ask you please to turn once again to 1 John chapter 4. And we'll seek the Lord's face in prayer once again. And we'll ask him to very especially bless the preaching of his precious word. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do leave the need of these few moments into thy hands, Lord. We pray for the preaching of thy word. Lord, that it would be done in the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, that it would be done to the glory of God. Heavenly Father, that thy word would be preached with power. And the Lord, it would be received with power. Lord, that thou would teach us from the scriptures. That thou would speak to our hearts through the scriptures. Lord, give us words of instruction. Give us words of guidance. Lord, we pray that it will be a blessing to your souls. And that, Heavenly Father, today our souls will rejoice in God's revealed truth to us. Heavenly Father, we pray that in answers to prayer, the name of God will be glorified. For we pray in our Saviour's holy and precious name. Amen. Amen. I remember recently I scanned through a church website and I was struck when I scanned through this church website on the heavy emphasis that this church placed on what you might define as extracurricular church activity. That is, those activities which go beyond the standard activities that a biblical church normally engages in. And these activities included social events for all people of all ages. And these social events included nights of sport, and music lessons, afternoon tea, knitting classes, language classes, day trips, visits from local celebrities, fundraisers, and car boot sales, among a wide range of other things. Now, at this stage, I want to emphasize that I don't oppose the church engaging in activities which are beyond the normal functions of the church, provided these are within reason. And I also want to emphasize that this church I'm referring to was not a free Presbyterian church. Uh, but among this wide range of social activities that this church engaged in, I noticed that there was one glaring omission. Because many people who did not belong to that church came through the doors to partake of their social activities, but missing was their missing in this church from their efforts to get people in was any emphasis on evangelism. There was little to no Christ. And there was little to no desire to present the biblical Christ to people who come into that church and engaged in, that acti and engaged in these activities. Now this church on their website, they, they considered themselves to be evangelistic. And they even said that they function and they exist to spread the love of Jesus as they put it in their own words. Yet it was evident by their activity that they have lost sight of what the church is of why the church exists, and they have lost sight of what evangelism really is. Social programs are not evangelism. They may lead to evangelism or some form of evangelism, but they are not evangelism. There are many uh, benefits to extra activities in the churches within reason to engage Yet these do not meet the needs of the souls of people. And therefore, friends, the church must not degenerate into a glorified social hub or a glorified community center. Because when it does, it becomes ineffective in a dark world. What do people really need today? 
People really need evangelism. Evangelism which presents the Christ of the Bible as the only saviour of sinners. That's what people need. So what is evangelism then? Now we could spend a great deal of time examining this question. However, I believe that 1 John chapter 4 and verse 14 gives us a basic yet an effective summary of what evangelism should involve and what evangelism consists of. And therefore, with these thoughts in mind, and 1 John 4 and 14 as my text for this morning, I want you to consider this topic with me of a pattern for evangelism. A pattern for evangelism. See, firstly, with me, the particulars of evangelism. Our text says that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Now, in these words, we have an ample summary of the gospel. And in the particulars of evangelism, we see that there was a divine endeavor because our text says the Father sent the Son. And friends, herein is the origin of the entire message of the gospel. Herein is the origin of this message that we preach and this message that we believe. This phrase signifies that the plan of salvation, that the message of the gospel has a divine origin. And what do I mean by that? I mean that it originated in the mind of God. Because from this, flowed that divine action of the Father sending the Son into the world. And this miracle of Christ coming into the world, this miracle of the incarnation, is the wonder of wonders for mankind. This plan of salvation could have had no other origin but a divine origin. It could not have been conceived anywhere but in the mind of God. Friends, it could not have been conceived in the mind of any created intelligence. It could not even have been conceived in the mind of angels. Had we as men and women but asked to come up with a solution to the great sin problem, our limited minds could never have fashioned such a solution as this. Yet, the mystery has been solved by God's great plan. It has been solved by divine endeavor. No more speculation is needed. What do we read in 1 John 4 and 9? It says there, And this was manifested, the love of God toward us, Because that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Now in scripture, Christ is referred to as the son of man. In Luke chapter 19 and 10, he refers to himself as this way. For it says there, for the son of man is is come to seek and to see of that which was lost. And this title, it really emphasizes uh, that he uh, emphasizes, sorry, the humanity of Christ. But in scripture, Christ is also referred to as the Son of God. In 1 John 5 and 20, it says, And we know that the Son of God is come. So this title emphasizes the deity of Christ. It emphasizes the fact that Christ is God in the flesh. Now we are aware as God's people that Christ is fully God, but he is also fully man. He has two natures in that one person. But you'll notice in our text, he is not referred to as the Son of God or the Son of Man. He is simply referred to as the Son. The emphasis then is the relationship between the Father and the Son. They are presented as two distinct 
persons. Now, in Scripture, sonship is predominantly related to submission. And it's characterized by obedience. The Savior said in John 8 and 44, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father will ye do. Now, these are the words of Christ to the Jewish religious leaders of the day who considered themselves to be sons of Abraham. And Christ rebukes their notions and he reminds them, you are not the sons of Abraham because you don't do the works of Abraham. You are the sons of Satan because you are in submission to Satan and you do the works of Satan. Therefore, you are the sons of the devil. Now, considering this, we conclude then that Christ is referred to in our text as son in relation to the father because he was submissive to the will of the father. In this context, he is submissive to the will of the Father in being sent into this world. And this is also signified by that word sent. It really means to send off or to dispatch. So to send someone off with a designated goal or purpose. Therefore, the Father sent the Son into the world with a specific goal in mind. And concerning the particulars of evangelism, there is also a divine effect because we see in our text what this goal of the Father sending the Son into the world was. It was, according to our text, to be the Savior of the world. And this was the end in view when the Father sent the Son. It's that He would be the Savior of the world. And what an appropriate title that title Savior is for the Lord Jesus Christ. In Luke 2 and 11 we read, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Saviour, which is Christ the Lord. And Christ is called Saviour because it references the nature of his work. He is a Saviour. And this reveals that mankind needs to be saved from something. And of course we know that mankind needs to be saved from sin. We read in Romans 3 and 23, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And friends, in our sin, we are totally alienated from a holy God. We are totally helpless. And we will one day face the wrath of God because of our sin. We will one day face his judgment. Romans 2 and 5 says, But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So us in our natural state as sinners, we are ripe for judgment and we are ripe for wrath. And that's why our text says that Jesus is Savior because we are emphasizing that the Lord Jesus Christ saves from the wrath of God. This was the designated purpose for Christ coming into the world. It's that he would save sinners from the wrath of God. He came in order to be a Savior for all types of people, from all types of backgrounds, from every nation in this world. And this great goal, this great purpose for which Christ came, it was was further realized when he went to the cross and when he died in the place of sinners in order that they might have their sins forgiven. And friends, his work actually resulted in salvation for sinners. 
It did not merely make salvation possible. It actually saved sinners. And how do we know? Well, look how many people are in this service today and they're saved. And they're washed in the Savior's precious blood. His work on the cross purchased salvation for sinners. And I want to ask you today in this service, are you a beneficiary of the Father sending the Son? We've said that the Father sent the Son to save from God's wrath. He sent the Son with a designated goal or purpose in mind. And I want to ask you today, have you trusted Christ for the forgiveness of sin? Well, I implore you to trust him, lest you one day face the wrath of God and perish for all eternity. Christ has made atonement for sin. And you need to trust him. Otherwise, friend, one day you will atone for your own sin by facing the wrath of God in hell forever. You need to be saved. These are the particulars of evangelism, but I want you to see, secondly, with me, the prelude to evangelism. Our text implies that before we testify of this message that the Father sent the Son, something happens beforehand, which leads to our testifying or leads to our evangelizing. It says, and we have seen. Now this seeing is in relation to that truth that we have considered that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And it is not referring to mere physical sight, but I want you to see concerning this sight that it is a revealing sight Because that that word seen, it really means to behold. And the sense of the word is that you gaze admiringly upon something which in turn has a profound impact on the mental and the moral faculties. And it is written in a way which suggests that it is a past action. And so what John is really referring to here when he says, and we have seen, is he's referring to a past event which has been the experience of a believer in Christ. It is an event which has had a profound impact in the life of a believer. And this, of course, is a reference to the time in a believer's experience when the truths of the gospel of Christ had a profound impact on them, which it never had before. Believer, this was a time in your life when all hardness, all blindness, all apathy, perhaps even hatred for the truth of Jesus Christ and his gospel went away. This was a time in your life when you gazed upon the person and the work of Christ with utter astonishment. If I could put that in more simple terms, I would say this. This was the day that in your sin you realized you were condemned and you beheld Jesus Christ as the only solution, as the only saviour, and you saw infinite value on his death on the cross. This aspect of seeing, it really refers to the day when you experienced the new birth. And as I pondered that word seen, and the fact that it references that time when we gazed admiringly upon Christ, I was struck by the fact that this isn't always the case for us as believers. And what do I mean by that? I mean by that that over time our awe for the person and work of Christ can diminish. And this can be for several reasons. This can be because of illness. It can be because of our circumstances. It can be because of other people. It can be because of ourselves. But the point is this. 
our love for Christ, our amazement that Christ, his work, his person, it can fade over time. Our hearts can grow cold. And believer, do you remember the first day that you were saved? You would have went out onto the street and you would have told a total stranger that you were a Christian and that they need to be saved and that they need Christ. And I want to ask you today, could you do that now? Could you do it now or has your heart grown cold? Would you be a bit more backward in telling people that you're a Christian and that you're saved? Even when you read your Bible and you read about what Christ has done for you, does it have that impact on you that it did years ago? Does it cause your heart to rejoice the way it did years ago? Is that still the case? Do you still by faith gaze upon him with the same wonder? The hymn writer asked this question, Where is the blessedness I knew when first I saw the Lord? It's an awful thing, believer in Christ, when we grow cold at heart. We might not be fully backslidden, but there are times when we just go through the motions and we are dull and we are stale and we come to church and we get nothing out of it. We don't really give anything of our worship and we just go home and it's rinse and repeat every week. But friends, you must never grow cold to the glory and the wonder of Christ's person. And you must never grow cold to the glory and wonder of Christ's work on the cross. Because this is your ultimate source of joy. And it's your ultimate source of contentment in the Christian life. See, once you're born again, once you're saved, once you become a Christian, there's nothing in this world that will give you lasting joy. There is nothing in this world that will give you lasting contentment like Jesus Christ. And that's why we must never lose our awe and wonder of him. That's why we must never grow cold to Christ and to the things of God. And if you have this morning, perhaps you need to pray the prayer of David in Psalm 51 and 12, where he said, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. And this sight that we read of in 1 John 4 and 14, it is not just a revealing sight, it is a renewing sight. Because that word seen also refers to a past event which has ongoing results. It's an ongoing process that will one day be completed. And this is the impact that a saving view of Christ has on the life of an individual, whether they be a man, a woman, or a child. Because when we truly gaze at the Savior, as I described before, we will be changed forever. 2 Corinthians 5 and 17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ... He is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. If you are saved today, you have been changed forever. The old man has been dealt a mortal blow. His destruction is certain, but he is not yet dead. Because there is still a link between the old man and the new man. There is a conflict in the Christian life. And it is this struggle with sin. And friends, sin no longer has dominion over you if you are in Christ, but sin is still in you. Galatians 5 and 17 reads, For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And therefore, a saving a sight of Christ is a renewing sight. It is an ongoing process in the Christian life. It involves our mind being renewed by the Holy Spirit 
primarily through the word of God and prayer. And what comes from this renewed mind? Well, from this renewed mind comes a greater desire to obey the will of God. uh, And that will be manifest in how we live our lives. If our mind is being renewed through the word, then we will be more holy. And we will live more like Christ. And we will have a greater degree of Christ-likeness. And that work will find its ultimate culmination on that day when we put off this old body of sin. And we are conformed to the perfect image of Christ. That's what we are working towards. We are working towards that day when we will be like him. And we will be clothed in his righteousness. And believer, this process... This renewing, it can be a grueling process. As you wrestle with the old man, you will often find yourself succumbing to the old man. You will often find yourself falling into sin. And what does this do in the life of the Christian? It results in despair. And what does the devil do when you fall into sin? He whispers in your ear that you're not saved. He whispers in your ear that you should give up. He whispers in your ear that you are a shame and disgrace. And then what do you do then? You look to yourself and you say, I'm a sinner. And you say, I'll never be able to live the Christian life. And you will be in despair. However, friends, this is where the revealing and the renewing come in and tie in together. Because what should you ought to do during your failures as a Christian? What should you do when you fall into sin as a Christian? You don't look to yourself. Because when you look to yourself, you will always be in despair. Because very simply, you're a sinner. And when you look to yourself, all you will see is weakness and sin. Friends, when you fall, you gaze admiringly at the person and the work of Christ. I'm not saying that you can lose your salvation. I'm saying that you still sin. And therefore your Christian life should be marked with ongoing repentance from sin. An ongoing turning from sin. And with your, faili- with your failure, with your weakness as a Christian, with your battle in sin, what do you do? You can and you run to Christ. And you gaze upon Christ time and time again. With that realization in your heart. He has paid for my sin. I'm not condemned for my sin. He has paid the price on the cross. He has shed his blood. The blood of Christ cleanseth me from all sin. Friends, always look to Christ. Even today, if you're in despair because of a sin you've committed this week, a sin you've committed this morning, run to Christ. Look to Christ. Get to the cross today for forgiveness. This prelude to evangelism involves being saved and it involves experiencing the saving work of Christ for ourselves. But I want you to see finally with me the proceedings of evangelism because we've considered this message of evangelism and the people who engage in this work. But our text also reveals to us what this work entails. It says, and do testify. And this is a direct result of seeing. This is a direct result of of being saved. And concerning this testimony, we want to notice that it is an accrediting testimony. Because that word testify, it is translated in Acts 16 and 2 as reported. 
And so the sense behind this word is to offer firsthand authentication in favor of someone. So what does our testifying consist of? Our testifying consists of reporting of the saving power of Christ, which we have experienced for ourselves. That is what we do when we testify. We say that Christ saves, he is able to save, and I know that because he has saved me. We are not like the apostles, and we are not like many in the early church who directly witnessed the miracles of Christ. We are not like those who sat down with him. We are not like those who even touched him and were close to him. But friends, the sum of our report concerning Christ is the transforming power of Christ in our personal lives. It is that the word of God is true when it tells us that Christ saves from the bondage of sin. It is that the Spirit of Christ can totally transform and change the life of an individual. The sum of our report is that we attest to the fact that God's word is true in this matter. And in every other matter of faith and practice, of course. We don't, and we don't certify to the saving power of Christ by our words only. We certify to the saving power of Christ by how we live our lives. When you tell people that Christ saves from the damning power of sin and from the damning consequences of sin, when you tell people that he has the power to transform the life of an individual, what will people do? People will look for evidence. And where will they look for evidence? They will look for evidence in you and your life. Believer, you can't tell people that Christ saves and transforms and not live a life which testifies to that power. This is the height of hypocrisy. This does not authenticate your report concerning Jesus Christ. If you say that you are a Christian and you don't exhibit Christ-likeness, if you say that you are a Christian and you haven't changed and you still talk the way you used to talk and you still act the way you used to act, you do Christ no favours whatsoever. In fact, you damage the testimony of Jesus Christ. Because what you say, what you do, how you treat people, even in the church, how you treat people, what jokes you laugh at, whether it be in the context of work, school, university, home, or any context, what you do, what you laugh at, what you say, will ultimately determine what people think of Christ and what they think of his testimony. I want to ask you today then, are you a testimony to the gospel of Christ? Are you a living, walking testimony to the fact that Christ transforms the life of individuals? Or are you a hypocrite? Do people look at you, what you do and what you say? And do they say, well, he or she is not much of a Christian? And if that's Christianity, if that's the gospel, I want nothing to do with it. Friends, we have to make sure that we don't damage the testimony of Christ. Matthew 5 and 16 says, Let your light so shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. And Christian, may your life and may my life testify to this message that we preach. Otherwise, the message will be largely ineffective. And not only is this 
testifying of Christ and accrediting testimony, but it is an active testimony. Because this is where everything that we have considered comes together. This is where evangelism finds its realization in this world. It is when those of us who have been saved by the power of Christ, by the power of the gospel, it is when those of us who have seen that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior, it is when those of us who are saved and born again testify to that message, actively testify to that message and preach it to others. Now there are several different Greek words translated as preach in the New Testament and some of them mean to herald forth, to announce good news, to talk or to give a detailed account. And so there are many ways that we can preach this message and we can testify to the saving power of Christ. It could be on the pulpit, but it could be very simply by talking. Talking to your neighbor, talking to a friend, talking to a family member. But the main point is this. This message of preaching Christ and him crucified is to be the substance of our evangelism. And it's something that, it's something that we can all engage in. Each and every person in this service. You can, do, you can play a role in this evangelizing of a lost world. And it might just be by talking. But you can play a role nonetheless. But it is by preaching. It is by preaching. This is the method that God has ordained. This is the method that God has been pleased to use. This is the method that God has especially blessed throughout history. It is the preaching of the word. And the minute the preaching of the word is pushed aside. Then a church must forfeit their claim to be evangelistic. Because it has always been the preaching of Christ. And it always should be the preaching of Christ. Friends, God is sovereign. And God can work in many ways. But it is by the preaching of the gospel that he has blessed the message. It is by the preaching of the gospel that he has sent revival. It is by the preaching of the gospel that he has saved and raised up the reformers and many like them. It is by the preaching of the gospel. Why would we ever want to neglect the preaching of the gospel? Why would we ever want to change it into something else? I don't know. 1 Corinthians 1 and 21 says, For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that belief. Friends, I would suggest to you today that history... And the scriptures have attested to the fact that the preaching of the gospel is the most effective means for getting people in, for building the church. It is the means whereby Christ will build his church. It's through the preaching of Christ. Therefore, nothing must overshadow the preaching of Christ and him crucified. God works through preaching. And if you want to see souls saved... If you want to see the church grow, then it is always and it must always be by the preaching of the gospel. It's as simple as that. And if we preach the gospel and the church doesn't grow, then we just have to accept that it's not God's will. And that's not the time to put the preaching aside and bring all the rubbish in and bring the music in and bring the entertainment in and put clowns in the pulpit. No, we must always preach Christ.
May we never lose sight, friends, of the reason for the existence of the church. It is primarily to worship God and to evangelize a lost world. Therefore, may we never lose sight amidst all of the activity that we engage in as a church. May we never lose sight of the fact that our primary concern ought to be to testify about what we have seen. That the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. May God give us the grace to do this, especially in these dark days, in these days of discouragement, in these days when numbers aren't what they used to be. May God give us the grace to keep testifying of Christ. And may God bless his word to all of our hearts for his glory. Amen. Amen. We'll sing a closing hymn. <clears throat> it's the hymn 490. And you'll find it on the page 373 of the hymn book. Take my life and let it be. Consecrate it, Lord, to thee. And we'll sing verse 1 and verse 3 as we bring our service to a close. Hymn 490, the verse 1 and the verse 3. And we'll stand as we sing this hymn together, please. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we do thank Thee for Thy Word, Lord, for the revelation of Thy Word, primarily the Lord Jesus Christ and His work on the cross. And Father, we do pray that Thou would give each and every one of us the grace and the power of Thy Spirit, Lord, that we may go and testify of this message to the world, Lord, that we may continually testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Saviour. Heavenly Father, help us to preach Christ and Him crucified and what we say and what we do. Lord, do take us to our homes in safety now and bring us back to our places of worship this evening in health and in strength. And now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honour and glory forever. Amen.